There's a brief disclaimer this week. There's some stronger-than-usual violence and some adult stuff. Please check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more information. This week on Myths and Legends, there are two stories from Italian folklore. On the first, we'll see that goat butlers make the best butlers, if, you know, they exist. And on the second, why, if you have trash water dripping on your eye, maybe roll over. Who knows, though? I'm not a doctor. The creature this week is a hairy little weirdo. Who's the reason you'll be taking a bath in the kitchen from now on? This is Myths and Legends, episode 228, Full Circle. This is a podcast where we tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. This week, there are two stories from the Italian writer Straparola, and they were put down to paper in the 1500s. In a collection known as the Facetious Nights, or the Pleasant Nights, it's a fairly off-the-wall collection of fairy tales that went on to influence other collections down the road. There are two stories of people going full circle. And the first, we'll start with an elderly priest who is getting really tired of walking everywhere. Scarpafico's feet ached, his legs ached, his back ached, every part of Scarpafico ached. Once, long ago, he had been a jolly priest. He had a parish, he had a purpose. But times changed. People flocked to a nearby town. His parish evaporated. If he wanted to seek alms or help the poor or serve the people, he needed to walk a few miles to the nearby town. In his 30s, this was easy. He prayed as he walked and the trip was over before it began. In his 40s, it took a little bit longer. In his 50s, he really started to feel it. And now, in his 60s, his prayers were more curses, and he needed a day to recover from the walks. Just buy a horse, Nina, the housekeeper, and the only member of his parish left, said to him. Scarpafico rolled his eyes, and stable it? And feed it? No, he wouldn't get a horse. Then a mule... Nina followed up, serving Scarpafico as breakfast. It will be cheaper and easier to house. They're hardy, too. Scarpafico shook his head. Okay, this is as much for me as it is for you, Nina said, sitting down across the table from him. Did he think she liked hearing him complain every night? Scarpafico put the thought from his head, but the time came that he was in town, and he spotted a mule. It was seven florins, expensive, but he had ten on him from selling Nina's produce. The used mule dealer slapped Scarpafico on the back. What could he do to get Scarpafico on this mule today? As Scarpafico and the mule dealer worked out the details, did a mule really need rust-proof undercoating? Three men watched from the alley. They had their eyes on that mule, but didn't want to actually pay for him. As they watched Scarpafico settle up, they studied the priest. Oh yeah, they were going to get that mule. How were they going to get that mule? by gaslighting him. As Scarpafico bumped back toward the cottage, he was in rocky, smelly bliss atop his new beast of burden. He heard a shout from the roadside. Hey, priest, how's it going? Scarpafico smiled. He said that things were actually going pretty well. He was returning from the market in style, atop a mule. The man laughed. Oh, mule, huh? 
And where might that be? All he saw was the priest riding a donkey. Okay then, Scarpafico said, and kept riding past the bewildered con man. This happened again, with another stranger taking interest in what deals the priest got at the market, and saying that he was riding a donkey. Scarpafico dismissed him too, and continued on. Finally, not a mile from the cottage, the third man commented that the priest must have been scammed. He was riding a donkey, not a mule. Now, when three people said it, the priest started to believe it. I have a hard time telling the difference between a donkey and a mule, but mules are generally meant for riding, whereas donkeys can be ridden, but, but are more meant for working. Scarpafico started to doubt his own judgment, and then looked at the animal. Ah, this is why he knew he should never buy things. He got down, sighed, and handed the man the reins. He might as well take this mule. I mean, sorry, donkey. The priest had no use for it. He shook his head. It was too good to be true. The last mile to the cottage was the longest he had ever walked. He had tasted a mule ride. Things would never be the same again. Yeah, you, you got scammed, Nina said as she swept the floor. I know, can you believe it? A donkey instead of a mule, Scarpafico said, eyes downcast. No, the, the guys on the road, they totally scammed you out of your mule, Nina informed the priest. Scarpafico was taken aback. What, how did the housekeeper get that idea? She said, okay, how often did people stop him on the road, asking what great deals he got? He thought about it. Almost never. And yet these three guys asked you today and all said the same thing, Nina said. She shook her head. Sorry, he was scammed. The priest refused to believe it. And Nina shrugged. Fine, if he went back to the market tomorrow and looked around, he would see these guys scoping out another person to con. The priest shook his head, not so much believing in the goodness of these strangers, but refusing to believe that he, a priest of this region for uh, decades, had been scammed. If you do, and you see them, take one of the goats. I have a plan, Nina said with a smile. You, the priest Scarpafico called out the next day when he spotted one of the con men at the market. The man's eyes widened, and he turned to run. But he found himself bumping up against the crowd. When he looked back, the priest was in front of him and hugging him. He thanked the man for his honesty, for telling him that he had been scammed in the marketplace. The priest was so grateful. Did the man want a free meal? When the priest said free meal, the other two con men emerged from the safety of the crowd. Hi, uh, they had been honest too? The priest lit up. Yes, awesome, please. Everyone was invited. The men followed Scarpafico as he walked around the market, buying all the ingredients for dinner that night. When they were finished, Scarpafico walked the goat to the edge of town, told it to inform Nina that they were going to have such and such dish that evening, and slapped it on the rear. The men watched the goat hoof it down the road. Didn't the priest need to, you know, guide the goat? Wouldn't he just wander off? The priest grinned. No, not that one. They had some free time now. Nina would be cooking, so who wants some wine? He's buying. 
An hour or so later, the priest walked up to the cottage with the three conmen, and all four of them saw the goat tied up outside. Scarpafico threw open the door. Hey, Nina. How's dinner coming along? Nina smiled and said it was coming along well. Finished, actually. The goat told her all she needed to know. The men were amazed and wanted to know more about the goat. But it wasn't until after dinner that Scarpafico would say anything. Yes, it was a magical goat. It was from, uh, I don't know, this wizard who had seen the light and joined the church. It could understand speech, find its way home, and relay instructions. It made deliveries super easy. The men looked at each other. Would, would the priest sell them that goat? The priest smiled. For a goat like that? Sorry, they couldn't afford it. The men looked at each other, then back to the priest, clearly insulted. How was he to know what they could and couldn't afford? The priest shrugged. It was nothing personal, but he was just a simple parish priest. He didn't spend time with kings or nobles. He didn't think anyone he would speak to would be able to afford the goat, but he asked for their forgiveness if he was wrong. The conman informed him that, yeah, he was wrong. The priest took a sip of wine and then smiled. Well, then, make him an offer. They settled on 200 florins, nearly 30 times the price of the mule that they had tricked from him. But this was a goat that could make deliveries and send messages. Of course, it sent them at the speed of goat, but this was 16th century Italy. This was like cutting-edge technology. Scarpafico untethered the goat. Now, just maybe keep an eye on him for the first couple of tries. He was magical, but he wasn't perfect. He could be stubborn and might not listen. The men waved off the advice. Thank you, but they knew how to handle a magical goat. The men emerged from the market. The feast piled on the back of the goat, just like Scarpafico had the day before. They grinned, telling the goat to go back home and to tell their wives what to make for dinner. They slapped the goat on the rear and then went to the same tavern they had been to with Scarpafico the day before. The goat joined his brother, the goat that Scarpafico had released the day before, in the Italian wilderness, eventually shaking off the ingredients for the feast, eating them, and being sure to never be seen by humans ever again. When the men staggered home a few hours later, they yelled out to their wives, where was dinner? The women didn't know what they were talking about. What goat? And also, where had most of their savings gone? The men explained about the magical goat they bought from the priest that they scammed, and uh, the women just laughed. I mean, come on, really? The men were confused. What? They got scammed right back. Not saying that they should have seen it coming, but they were professional con men. They should have seen it coming. Not that they didn't deserve it, them scamming everyone all the time. Just let it go. The con men, grabbing their daggers, were doing pretty much the opposite of letting it go. Several minutes later, Nina screamed when the three con men kicked in the door of the priest's cottage. They rushed up to Scarpafico, daggers pointed at his face. The goat was a lie. If he gave them their money back, they would make it quick. Scarpafico was confused. The goat? The goat was a lie? Grim realization washed over his face as he turned with a dour look to Nina. You, he said, glowering, and ignoring the men who still had knives pointed at him. He stepped over to her. 
you were going to pocket the money and make me take the blame for your crime, weren't you? Where's the real goat, Nina? Scarpafico demanded. Nina took a step back from the approaching priest. She said she didn't know what he was talking about. Her back hit the cupboard. There was no place left for her to go. Scarpafico said she deserved this as he grabbed a knife from the countertop and plunged it relentlessly into her stomach. Blood poured out and Nina screamed. She grew weak and tried to hold onto the counter, but her hands slipped on her own blood. She hit the ground. Nina was dead. Wow, the con men said, swallowing hard. That got real intense, real fast. Seriously, he just straight up murdered her? Scarpafica was on the ground too, holding Nina's hand. What had he done? He didn't even know if she was responsible. The goat could have just run away from them. He got lost in his own anger. He had murdered another person. The three con men said, wow, yeah, they, hmm, they kind of lost their stomach for murder today. But the priest pointed to the shed in the back. Bagpipes. Bagpipes, the con men asked. The priest nodded. Get them now. Hurry. The con men obliged, fetching the bagpipes. The priest took them and, taking a minute to remember the tune, blew. The tune was a simple one, and the con men were a little confused why Scarpafica was playing an impromptu dirge for the woman he had just murdered when they saw Nina's chest rise for the first time in minutes. She gasped, and her eyes opened. Nina was alive. Scarpafico hugged the woman, apologizing profusely for murdering her. Nina hugged him back, saying that she forgave him. She didn't know why the goat didn't return to these men, but she would never betray Scarpafico like that. The con men were all stunned. Those bagpipes just brought her back to life? Scarpafico looked. Oh yeah, yeah they did. He was grateful that those worked. He had never used them before, but after today, he would never have a need to use them again. The con men looked at each other, so so they were for sale? They got a deal. The priest credited them with what they paid for the goat, seeing as it had gotten away, so the bagpipes that brought people back from the dead were only an additional 200 florins. The con men thanked the priest for being so understanding and went home. As soon as they were out of sight, the priest went to Nina. Was she all right? He didn't actually hit her, did he? She pulled the deflated bladder full of blood from underneath her shirt. Nope, it was close, but her plan went off without a hitch. It was a few days later when the con men's wives confronted them. Hey, so there's even less in the lockbox now? After they confronted that priest and got their money back, so what's going on? The men said, yeah, it's because they talked it over with him and bought some bagpipes that brought people back from the dead. The woman stood frozen for a few minutes longer, then facepalmed. Oh, so like he was out of magic beans then? The comment looked at each other. Wow, they should ask about magic beans next time. Uh, but also, they didn't care for the wives' tone. The wives said that they didn't care for not having any money in their savings. The men said that they better be careful or they might force the men to do a demonstration of the bagpipes. The women said that that was impossible because that would mean that the bagpipes actually worked. Things only escalated from there. 
until the con men, well, ugh, they created the conditions necessary for bringing people back to life. Namely, they killed their wives. The con men were pretty excited about some consequence-free murder, but that excitement quickly dwindled when, song after song, the women remained dead. They weren't coming back. Worse, they were right. The con men had been conned. Priorities. There was a scream at the door, and the three men turned to see a neighbor, looking in horror at the bodies. Turned out that when you murdered someone and then put on a small concert, people noticed. He yelled out that there had been a murder, alerting half of the neighborhood. The men looked at each other. They needed to get out of here, of course, but there was something else that they had to do. They found the priest outside of his cottage, and for all of Nina's planning, she really thought that they would take more time before straight up murdering someone. Scarpafico's eyes widened, and he took off in a run at the first sight of one of the conmen, but he ran flat into another. The man sneered and hit him over the head with the butt of his dagger. The bad guy seemed to have caught Scarpafico flat-footed, but we'll see what tricks the priest has up his sleeve, and that will be right after this. Scarpafico's head was pounding as he rubbed against the burlap. His body, contorted and shoved into the sack, ached, but he was alive. One of the con men had thrown him over his shoulder, and Scarpafico resisted the urge to strike out at the man. The con men had kept him alive, but he didn't want to test their patience. All it took was them sliding a dagger through the bag if they changed their minds. The bag was bumping, hurriedly, as the men raced through the countryside. The king's men, they're close behind, Scarpafico heard from one. I know, I can't get away, not with him on my back, another said. Hide him, we'll come back. We can't take our revenge if we're in the dungeons, the third said. And the one carrying Scarpafico immediately obliged. Scarpafico hit the ground hard, heard the rustling of dead leaves around him and the footsteps of the conmen. The king's men must have been far off because Scarpafico didn't attract attention. Even when he shimmied from the hiding spot and rolled out, he heard the river flowing nearby and was careful not to keep rolling lest he flee from one danger and roll right into another. Then, from the direction Scarpafico thought was the road, he heard dozens of hooves and a whistling sound. The old priest smiled. They want me to take her, but I will have none of her, for I am a priest and I have no concern with such matters. The shepherd heard from the bag, over and over again. He loosened the rope at the top and found the priest huddled inside. What, what was going on? Scarpafico explained the whole situation. It was this rich noble in the city. He was looking for a husband for his beautiful daughter, and he was insisting that Scarpafico fulfill that role, kind of. The shepherd narrowed his eyes. So the priest was being forced to marry a beautiful rich girl, and this was a problem? The priest said that, well, kidnapping was a problem, for one. The man was so adamant that someone, anyone, marry his daughter that it seemed like it didn't matter who it was. The men who came to his parish were supposed to get the young servant there, but they just grabbed him. The old priest was an old priest. He didn't think he could be a suitable husband to the woman if he wanted to. And he didn't want to. 
he had taken a vow of celibacy. Wait, so they were supposed to get a young man, but they got you, the shepherd said. Wait, where did they go? The priest said he didn't see. He was in a bag, probably off to the bathroom or something. Hey, the shepherd boy said, thinking it over. Did the priest mind if he traded places with the old man? I mean, the old priest didn't want to get married anyway. And if it was all the same to the rich noble, to the point where he would accidentally kidnap an elderly priest, then he wouldn't care at all if it was a younger shepherd. The priest well, shrugged. Wow, well, I'm, that's an idea. If the young man wanted to take his place in this bag completely of his own volition, the priest wouldn't stop him. The priest stepped out and the young man took his place, asking the priest to please, please close the bag up so the kidnappers wouldn't know the switch had been made. The priest nodded and looked up to the sky, to God. Uh, once again, he was just following this young man's explicit requests based on slightly unverified information. The shepherd looked around. Weird thing to say to the sky, but sure. He was just so excited to get married. The priest cinched the bag and asked if he could have the man's flocks. The shepherd said, absolutely. Where he was going, he wouldn't need flocks. The priest nodded. The man had no idea how true that was. He drove the flock off. When the con men returned, they were out of breath and sweating. They really wanted to make this priest suffer, but they just didn't have the time. Better to just dump him into the river and go. The other two agreed, tossing the bag into the water and taking off into a run. The shepherd inside the bag wondered why the nobleman's estate was so watery as he sank. The three con men rounded the bend and found the priest driving the herd of sheep away from the river. Hey, jerks, the priest said, stopping for them. Think you could have thrown me any closer to the shore? Why didn't you throw me deeper into the water? I would have like twice the flock if you did. The con men were confused. What? How was he alive? What was he talking about? The priest rolled his eyes. Well, here's the thing. He had these magic stones. Whenever someone threw him into the river in a sack holding one of these stones, he would find himself by the river with a flock of sheep. The farther he was thrown into the river, the more sheep he got. When someone tossed him with a weak throw like the con men had, he only got like a little baby tiny herd like this. The first con man was confused. That sounded like a really specific use for these rocks. You mean a really specifically awesome use for these rocks, the second con man said, Gimme, gimme, a free flock would give them enough money to disappear forever. The first one saw how excited the other two were about the free sheep and clamored for it. Okay, whatever. Where did he sign up? The priest said that there weren't really sign-ups, just get in the bag. All the men had extra bags, in the event that something went south when they tried to capture Scarpafico. And they went to the river, got in, and told the priest to make sure to throw them into really deep water. They wanted those sweet, sweet flocks. Scarpafico smiled. Oh, he would make sure they got what they deserved. The last con man cocked an eyebrow. Sounded kind of ominous, but he was cut off by the closing of the bag. It was ominous. Scarpafico might have been through a lot that day, but he found the strength to toss the con men into the river. The last thing he heard before the bags dipped under the surface was, wait, how does this work again? The priest, Scarpafico, returned home and threw his arms around Nina. 
thanking her for such a flawless plan. Now, he had to improvise at the end there, resulting in the deaths of four people. The whole thing where the con men got arrested for murder didn't really pan out like her original plan. But he would gladly give her all the credit for getting them out of danger. Nina cocked her head. Wait, there was a body count now? <laughs> Scarpafico smiled. Well, it was a necessary evil, but she got all the credit. Nina shook her head. Nope, no thanks. She was good. Scarpafico nodded. He wasn't listening. Yep, all the credit. All right, he said, looking at his flock. He was going to go sell some of these off. Because he, well, he had to go buy a mule. That's where things end up for Scarpafico and Nina. In a story where Scarpafico did have kind of a high body count for a priest, I love stories of people finding ways to outsmart others, though I was kind of surprised by the shepherd boy. Tricking him into a bag to die? I don't know. Kind of feels unethical. Not sure what mental gymnastics the priest had to do to justify that one. Anyway, we'll jump into another story of people coming full circle. This time it's three friends fighting over a ring that's very precious to them. But that, once again, will be right after this. Gentlemen, gentlemen, please, said the evil. The gentleman, a Roman noble, who was on his way to his farm outside of Rome. What is the meaning of this row, these fisticuffs, this hurly-burly? The three men, who had been best friends until just a few minutes ago, looked to the man in his 1940s lexicon. Well, here's the thing. Lake Smeagol and his best friend, whose name I can't remember because Smeagol nearly instantly murdered him, these young men were on the verge of killing each other over a ring they found. Fentuzzo had seen it glinting. Gordino had squinted, seen that it was a ring, and Sanusio had run over and put it on. So each man said they had a claim to it. Naturally, instead of working it out, they were beating each other bloody. Signor Gavardo tried to go around to not get involved, but his horse was almost roped into the fight, so he yelled for them to stop. They were three peasants, and he was a noble. He could have them executed for this. The men asked if he could do that? Gavardo said he was an old world noble, so probably? Did they want to test it? Besides, he could judge who deserved the ring. But first, what were they doing out here? What was their story? The men said that they were known for their laziness, gluttony, not making great decisions. The noble nodded. Weird thing to brag about, but it was good that they knew themselves. Continue. The other two pointed to Gordino, saying that he had a line on a job in Rome that could set all of them up. So they were breaking their one rule of being lazy, gluttonous, and not making great decisions and going to Rome together. But then they found the ring, and that hurly-burly developed. The noble shrugged. Well, they were lazy and all that, right? Here's the deal. They could leave the ring with him. He was super rich and had no need for the ring. And then they could spend two weeks being lazy rascals. Whoever was the meanest, the laziest, just the worst, would get the ring. Deal? The three rogues agreed. It was either this, die, or be thrown in jail for murder. So this seemed like the best option. Besides, they all thought that they could be the worst. In 15 days, 
they would meet at Senor Gavardo's farm. When they reached Rome, the three men went their separate ways, finding different ways to earn money or not earn money. We'll get to that. And that's how Gordino found himself at the doctor. You see, Gordino was out with his new master at the market and the man was picking out some figs. They were just normal figs and they were delicious. Gordino, seeing a chance to be low-key terrible and because he was hungry, just took the figs that his master bought and put them straight into his mouth. This continued all afternoon. He was full. He didn't feel like eating more figs, but still, he shoved in the figs. He shoved them in until his mouth was bulging and his master turned around. He asked Gordino what was wrong, but the man wouldn't open his mouth. He only mumbled and pointed to his cheeks packed with figs. The master made the only conclusion possible. Gordino had a tumor. And it just popped up right there in the market. They had to get him to the doctor. It's so bad that poor Gordino can't open his mouth to explain what's going on, the master remarked, which was kind of true. He didn't want to open his mouth because figs would come spilling out of it and then people would yell at him. The doctor, maybe wanting to be thorough, maybe wanting to get paid for a surgery, or maybe he was just like a barber or something that did doctor work on the side. Who knows? He said that he would be happy to give Gordino a full workup. Gordino's master told him to spare no expense. He didn't. And finally, when it came time for the surgeon, i.e. barber, to cut and press the tumor, the master recoiled. Out came blood and some other type of purplish discharge. The master almost threw up. He had never seen anything like this. It was so horrible. He told Gordino not to worry. He, his family, his friends, they would all be taken care of. He was going to get through this. It, it's fig, the, the surgeon said, smelling the discharge. His mouth was full of figs. Just then, Gordino spat out all the figs onto the floor and felt the hole in his cheek. The master looked him over, disgusted. The master turned to the surgeon. Please dress the wound. He turned back to Gordino. I'm fired, aren't I? Gordino asked. Yes. Yes, you are, the master said, turned, and didn't look back. Gordino shrugged. Well, at least he had a solid story for the ring. He wondered how the others were doing. The surgeon slash barber asked him to please refrain from shrugging and narration while he was patching up the hole in the man's cheek. Fentuzo, one of the other guys, was in a somehow worse spot than Gordino. Gordino had come to Rome with a prospect, and seeing as Fentuzo couldn't leech off his friend, he quickly burned through the cash he had and fell to sleeping in doorways, porticos, and the forest. You see, Rome was unforgiving to Fentuzo, so he did take to the forest. Pretty much as soon as he was away from any structure, it started pouring down rain, and he ran for, I don't know, half an hour until he came upon a dilapidated house in the forest. As he looked around in the dark, he could see that although the house was damp and reeking of mold, it was not in the rain. So Ventuzzo settled down into the corner, tucked himself in under a rotting blanket, and went to sleep. For about 20 minutes. Okay, so I can be lazy. We all can. I don't know if anybody else goes through this, but sometimes when you're in bed, you have to go to the bathroom. But you just don't feel like getting up. But you can't go to sleep because you have to go to the bathroom. 
It's this weird, ridiculous cycle. Anyway, Fentuzzo was kind of like that, but with trash water dripping on his face. I don't know if it was like Fentuzzo closing the door of the house that did it, but the roof above him had long since rotted, and water was now flowing through it. Fentuzzo was apparently so lazy that he let the water that had accumulated in a stagnant, moldy pool on the roof flow directly into his eye, as opposed to, you know, rolling over. In the morning, after what couldn't possibly have been a good night's sleep, Fentuzzo opened his eyes, but found that one of them was still closed. He touched it. Nope, not closed. Soft and squishy, still open. Huh. He was blind in one eye after letting the trash water flow on him for most of the night because he was so lazy he refused to move at all. Then his face lit up. He was blind in one eye because he was so lazy he refused to move. He pumped his fist. Yes, that ring was as good as his. Unlike Gordino, who was getting fired after unnecessary surgery, and Fentuzzo, who was doing a trash eye wash, Sanusio was making some big life changes. He was getting married. It was kind of a whirlwind romance. Like, really, really quick. And mere days after he arrived in Rome, Sanusio moved in with his new wife. The reason why people date or court or whatever is so that they can get to know each other before committing to a lifetime together. It had been a learning experience for sure, but as the couple went to bed that evening, Sanusio's wife heard the door banging against the wall in the wind. Did, did Sanusio leave the door wide open? Sanusio said yeah, but he didn't want to get up and close it, so uh, kind of at an impasse here. She said no, they weren't. Get up and close the door. Sanusio crossed his arm, sitting up in bed. Nope, sorry. He didn't know if she knew this, but he was proudly, famously lazy. She said that she did not know that. She wished he would have led with that for their 15 minutes of dating that might have changed things, but here they were. Now please go close the door. Sanusio said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now she was trying to change him? No, this was the Sanusio that she married. He was a lazy man. Okay, okay. He'd make things fair. Here's the deal. The first person to say something, anything, has to close the door. Sanusio's wife shook her head. No. That's ridiculous. Go close the door. Ah, you lost. You gotta go do it. Sanusio laughed. His wife sneered. All right. She would play his game. The first to talk had to go close the door. The pair put out the light and just laid there, listening to the door creak back and forth. Several minutes passed, and they continued just laying there in silence neither wanting to get up and get the door. Yes, but more importantly, neither wanting the other to win. Then they heard footsteps. Sanusio almost asked who it was, but then he heard a voice. Hello? A man yelled out. He said he needed a light for his candle and the door was open. They heard more footsteps throughout the house, slowly making their way to the bedroom. Soon, a dark form blocked any light from the window. As he stood over Sanusio, Hey, hey buddy, what's up? Could he have a light for his candle? He shook Sanusio, but the man only looked up at him, not saying anything. The stranger shook his head. Weird. And then he looked to the other side of the bed. He slid on over. Oh, hey there. Fifteen days later, Gavardo, the nobleman, 
who was judging the competition, put his hands over his kid's ears. A little warning, come on. He was listening to the story with the rest of his household. Okay, was that going in the direction he thought? Sanusio shrugged. I mean, pretty much, yeah. The guy went over to the side of her bed. She looked at me and then she, quote, enjoyed a merry evening. But she was also mad at me for not closing the door. He turned to his friends, which is how he won the quiet game. High five up top. The three men turned to Gavardo. Well then, what'll it be? Who is the winner of the ring? Gavardo looked at the three men. One's cheek was a former fig-packed abscess, and he still had the hole to prove it. One was blind in one eye because he didn't want to roll over. The third's wife had left him because he valued winning a ridiculous argument over their relationship. He looked down at the ring, held it out in front of him, and threw it as hard as he could into the road. There was no winner here. Only three losers. Ventuzzo squinted, seeing it glinting. Gordino pointed to it and Sanusio ran over and put it on. Sanusio got a punch in the face, Gordino got a kick in the side as he was wrenching the ring off his friend, and Fentuzzo got a headbutt as he was holding up his precious. Gavardo, the noble, went inside, letting the three men sort this out themselves in the street, as he should have done the first time. That's it for this week. Next week, we'll be back in the story of the Monkey King, where we'll see the guys stop off for some rest, relaxation, and marriage proposals, and learn that if your road trip snack looks and acts like a three-day-old human baby, you might want to check out the vending machine at the next rest stop. If you'd like to support the show, there is still a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of mirrored reading glasses, glasses so that you can lay on your back facing up at the ceiling but still be able to read a book that's open on your chest because these glasses use the same technology as a periscope, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of this show that are frankly not as useful as periscope glasses. I might actually need to try those out because I haven't quite cracked the secret to comfortably reading in bed. Anyway, check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The grade to this week is Bannock from Slavic folklore. Now, if you're thinking you want to head to the bathhouse in the off hours, when there won't be anyone there, so you can have some privacy, well, you won't have privacy, even if you're alone, because Bannock is there. The Bannock is a hairy little man who lives behind the stove in an old Slavic bathhouse. The Bannock, crazy fun guy that he was, was always up to mischief, like making spooky voices, tapping someone on the shoulder then disappearing, or strangling bathers if he was even slightly offended. Further straining the term mischief, the Bannock has been known to throw boiling water on people, carry off babies, and just straight up burn down the bathhouse. What offends this little creep who watches people bathe? Apparently Christianity. People were forbidden from putting any Christian symbols in the bathhouse, or even wearing something like a crucifix in the bath, lest they spark the Bannock's ire. In a medieval Slavic adult swim sort of thing, the third or fourth firing of the stove in the bathhouse was reserved for the Bannock, who, despite being a creeper peeping Tom himself, really liked his privacy, so he was permitted to bathe alone. If you want to get on the good side of your local bath monster, before you build the bathhouse, you just have to suffocate a black chicken 
and bury it under the doorway as an offering. I guess the bannock isn't all bad though and can help you out with some divination. If you want his advice, go to the bathhouse and point your naked back toward the structure, asking the bannock a question. If the answer is positive, the bannock will, quote, gently touch your spine. If it's negative, he'll scratch you. I personally think I'm content leaving stuff up to chance, rather than potentially getting a very angry massage from a hairy bath monster. If you want to avoid the bannock, you have to avoid the bathhouse. And apparently some people did just that. Instead of dealing with all that, they would just go get some stove-warmed water in a big metal tub. So, next time dad is scrubbing down in lukewarm water right there in the kitchen, just blame the bannock. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.